Indeed, what wonderful words we just sing. You are the way to God, your blood, our ransom paid. In you we face our judge and maker unafraid. Before the throne absolved we stand, your love has met, your laws demand. Indeed, that is our hope, our confidence this evening as we gather together to worship our God that his love has met, his laws demand. I would ask that you turn with me to the book of Judges. Chapter 21, Judges chapter 21, as you're turning there, I'd like to remind you of a news story um, that I'm sure you at one time remembered, Uh, perhaps it has slipped from memory, but in April of 2014, in the country of Nigeria, an armed terrorist organization named Boko Haram kidnapped nearly 300 girls from their boarding school there in Nigeria. For months, the world watched with bated breath, wondering what had become of these schoolgirls. We hoped the best while expecting the worst. And on social media, hashtags like bring back our girls sprang up, and, and the world was captivated by this saga of these 300 young girls that had been kidnapped, taken from their homes and families, and held captive by this terrorist organization. To date, 164 of these girls have been rescued, including one that's been rescued just in the past couple of weeks. But over 100 remain captive. What if I told you that in the book of Judges, to conclude the book of Judges, we see a story in which God's own chosen people commit the very same atrocity that the the world bemoaned here just a few years ago. And even on a greater scale, a greater degree, for in Nigeria, 300 young ladies were captured. In the book of Judges, we're told that 600 women, virgins, are taken captive, taken from their homes, from their families. In the case of 400 of them, their families ruthlessly slaughtered. And this all taking place within the nation of Israel. Fitting ending for the book of Judges. And so if you are with me in Judges chapter 21, I would ask that you stand this evening in honor of the reading of the word of God as we read, beginning in verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying... None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives, for those who remain, seeing that we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give our daughters as wives. And they said, 
What one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were counted, indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out there 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. And this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Remen, and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive, of the women of Jabesh Gilead. And yet they had not found enough for them. And the people grieved for Benjamin, because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who remain, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the children of Israel have sworn an oath, saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, In fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanoah. Therefore they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go, lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh. Then go to the land of Benjamin. And then it shall be, when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain, that we will say to them, Be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Lord, may it never be said of us that we do only what is right in our own eyes. Lord, we know that our hearts are deceitfully wicked and capable of contriving of great evil. Lord, we know that the only solution for this, the only cure to the wickedness of our own hearts is to have Christ reigning as King. Lord, I pray that we would submit our lives in faithfulness to Christ. I pray that as we see the great error, the great atrocities, the great evils that are committed by your people in this passage to conclude the book of Judges, I pray that we would rightfully recoil in horror at what takes place, but also realize that 
apart from you. We too are capable of making such decisions. We too are capable of choosing pragmatism and expediency over holiness. We too are capable of blaming you when things do not go right in our lives. We too are capable of plunging ourselves into rash and foolish oaths. Lord, help us this evening to use this text in the way that the author intended and in the way that Paul said that it should be used as a warning to us, recorded for those that would come later so that we might see the error of your people in the past and we might pursue a different path. Lord, help us to pursue holiness. Help us to examine our lives by the mirror of your word. And whatever we see that exists in our lives that does not reflect Christ, let it be changed so that we might honor and glorify you in all that we say and do. Lord, I pray that that goal would be accomplished here tonight. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we come here this evening to the last chapter in the book of Judges, we can certainly agree that it has been a bit of a tumultuous journey. If you came to this book hoping to find heroes, then I am sorry to have disappointed you. Instead of heroes, we have found tragically flawed men. Some of them cowards. Most of them idolaters. But all of them used of God. More often than not, in spite of, not because of, their spiritual qualifications. We've seen in this book Israel triumphant in battle, but more often than not, we've seen them subjected to foreign Canaanite oppressors. And here the author puts a fitting bow on the whole book. One more episode to bring closure, not just to the Benjamite saga that we saw last Sunday morning, but to this entire dark chapter of Israel's history. As we examine this concluding chapter here tonight, I want to draw out four points from the text. First, avoid rash oaths. Second, we are to accept personal responsibility rather than blaming God. Third, affirm what is holy rather than what is legal. And fourth, assess your actions by God's word rather than what seems right to you. Now, if I was a really good Southern Baptists, they would have all started with the letter V like the title, but there's only so many words in the dictionary that start with the letter V, so we had to move back to the letter A for the points here. But nonetheless, I think we can hopefully organize those in our mind and follow along. But as the chapter opens, the author gives us some insight into something that had taken place before the disastrous civil war against Benjamin. And so just to provide some context and to bring you up to speed, remember that a woman had been raped in the city of Gibeah. She died. And the Levite for whom she was a concubine cut her into pieces and sent her throughout Israel. All of Israel was outraged by this atrocity and they gathered together to execute justice on the offenders. When it was discovered that it was a city within the tribe of Benjamin that had done this, they waged a costly civil war against the entire tribe of Benjamin. 
During this war, three battles were fought, and over 75,000 soldiers were killed, on top of all the civilians within the entire tribe of Benjamin. After the war, there remained only 600 men from the tribe of Benjamin hiding in a cave. Evidently, though, before this battle was ever fought, the men of Israel bound themselves together with two oaths. The author tells us of the first one in the very first verse. First, they took an oath that no one from Israel should give their daughter to a member of the tribe of Benjamin in marriage. Evidently, they anticipated that that whatever the outcome of this battle, whatever the outcome of this war, that they wanted to keep Benjamin separate from the rest of the tribes of Israel. They wanted to remain the integri- that they wanted to maintain the integrity of Israel as a nation. And so the rest of Israel would not allow the men of Benjamin to marry their daughters because they were so vile for this act. Second, as we will see in a few minutes, they took an oath that any tribe or clan that was not represented in their war against Benjamin would likewise be under a curse of destruction. These two oaths will provide the basis for every action that's taken throughout the rest of this chapter. And these two oaths were both completely unnecessary. Our first point then is that we should simply avoid rash oaths. Oaths or vows like these demonstrate a fundamental lack of trust in the Lord. And they are predicated on the faulty assumption that we have something that God would be interested in bargaining for. We're reminded of Jephthah earlier in the book of Judges who who vowed before God, God, if you would just give me the victory in this battle, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that comes out of my house. Tragically, that ended up being his own daughter. It's fitting then that in this last chapter, it would once again be the daughters of Israel who would be the victims of this oath. But they make this vow, this oath, thinking that somehow this will engender some uh, confidence among the men, that, that, that it will bind them together in unity, that it may make God help them in the battle. Perhaps you too have done this. I will confess that as a teenager, I was guilty of attempting to bargain with God, attempting to make oaths. God, if you'll let me date this girl, then I promise I'll give more of my allowance to the church or something of that nature. I do remember specifically bargaining at one point for my salvation as a teenage boy, knowing I was an unbeliever, saying something to the effect, "If God, if you will just save me, then I'll do whatever you would have me do. I will go be a missionary to China if that's what you want. How foolish we are if we think that we can bargain with God as if God is just waiting for us to offer the right deal, if he's waiting for us to sweeten the pot a bit before he gives us what we want. As if God in heaven is saying, well, I already have 500 people pledging to go to China. If he promises to go to Mongolia, then we might have a deal because I don't have enough people going there yet. You see, we need to understand that God doesn't need a thing. That we have to offer. Such vows are an affront to his grace and mercy, which come to us entirely unmerited. However, we shouldn't think that such vows are just simply then trivial or cute or, or foolish, can easily be laughed off. They are indeed foolish, but they're not 
trivial or cute. Sometimes we are compelled to make vows before God, not in an attempt to force God's hand, not an attempt to bargain with God, but rather in an attempt more so like these people do here to bind ourselves to one another, to bind ourselves to another person. And we ought not take those vows rashly. For those of you that are married, you have taken vows before God and men to honor and cherish your spouse until death do you part. Don't you dare think about breaking that vow. That is a sacred vow. And if you haven't yet taken such a vow, do not do so rashly. It is too serious a matter to bind yourself to someone based on impassioned romance or youthful attraction which may wane with age. When you stand before God and you say, till death do us part, you had better mean it. This is the most common vow that men take, that men and women take with one another before God. But there are others, not necessarily as explicit as that, Some more implicit, when we accept new members into the church, we are implicitly pledging ourselves to both love them and keep them accountable. This is something that we're called to do as a church, but we do not need to take this obligation lightly. We need to understand that this is a serious and weighty thing. Likewise, and more explicitly, every year when we dedicate children in this church, the children that have been born in the past year, The church pledges itself to aid those parents in the raising of that child. It's not something that we do out of sentimentality because it's cute and it makes for a good photo op. We are pledging ourselves to one another. We are pledging our aid, our prayers, our discipline. We're we're pledging before God to aid and assist each other in the raising of children. We have a responsibility to one another. And so I'm not saying that we should never take a vow or make a pledge, but when we do, we had best consider all the ramifications of that vow before entering into it rashly as Israel does here. Second, we see from the text that we need to accept personal responsibility rather than blaming God. After the third and final battle, the Israelites once more gather together and weep. We saw this in chapter 20 last Sunday morning as we walked through the three battles that the Israelites fought against the tribe of Benjamin. After each battle, they would gather together and weep before God, the first two times because they had been defeated. But here, after the third battle, they once more gather together before God and they weep bitterly. Not over a defeat, Though Instead, this time, the great and terrible reality of what has just happened is beginning to dawn on them. They have annihilated Benjamin. Only 600 men remain. They have killed the women and children and burned the cities to the ground. The unity and integrity of Israel as a nation is about to crumble. Again, they weep all day as they did before at the house of God. And again, remember that that before each of the battles, they make an inquiry of God. They ask God, should we go up? First they ask God, God, who who should lead the battle against Benjamin? And God says, Judah. 
And then after the first defeat, they say, God, should we go up again? And he says, yes, go up again. And then after a second defeat, they say, God, do you want us to go up again and fight against our brothers? And God says, yes, go again. And this time you'll win. So, so there's been this back and forth. There's, there's been a weeping, a humbling of themselves before God. There's been an inquiry made of God and God has answered them. And again, here they weep and they inquire of God. Why has this come to pass that an entire tribe is missing in Israel? It's the same pattern as before. Weeping, battle, weeping, inquiry. But this time, instead of providing an answer, notice that God is silent. And His silence here is striking. Because if the people really stop to think about it, this isn't a question that needs a divine response. If they really stop to think about it, several answers should be easy to come by. Why has this happened? Well, perhaps because Israel has broken their covenant relationship with God. They have pursued idols. They have lapsed in their devotion to the Lord. They have allowed sexual sin to remain unchecked. For a more direct response, we might say you have literally just swarmed through the tribe of Benjamin, killing everything that breathed, and burning every city. So why is there an entire tribe missing? Because you have annihilated them. So the question, why has all this happened, is a bit disingenuous. Because it implies that someone other than Israel is at fault. And the implication they're making is that that someone is God. And so we should not be surprised here that God remains silent. Whereas before the people had sought God for direction and what they should do, and he had answered, this time they accuse him. And he does not answer. Later in verses 6 and 15, the author makes the accusatory intentions of Israel explicit, stating that one tribe is cut off from Israel today. It's a very passive statement that they make there. It's cut off. It's not as if we've done it, but it's been cut off. In verse 15, the narrator interjects, And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. <clears throat> now, it's not entirely wrong here to say that the Lord has done this. His law demanded just retribution for the crimes that had been committed in Benjamin. He commanded them three times to go up and to fight in chapter 20. But there is a difference between recognizing God's sovereign will that His law be followed and that holiness be upheld and blaming God for wickedness. There's a difference between those things. When bad things happen, it's never God's fault as if He were either malicious in His dealings or neglectful. This was the same error. These people are making the same error that Job ultimately made. Asserting his own righteousness to the degree that he accused God of being wrong and allowing the terrible things to happen to him. God may have decreed that these things take place, but they are not his fault any more than we would say that the criminal who is executed by lethal injection, that his death is the fault of the judge. No, his death is the fault of himself. He's the one that committed the crimes. He earned the penalty for his sin, the judge is not at fault for executing that man. No more than God is at fault for Benjamin being missing among the people. Benjamin, 
is at fault. They chose to pursue evil. The fault here lay lies at the feet of Benjamin and in a broader context, Israel itself, because corporately Israel as a nation had neglected the Lord. They had neglected their devotion to him. They neglected the worship of God. They had allowed idolatry to run amok in the land. They had become canonized. The fault lay individually at the feet of the wicked men who committed the atrocious sin in Gibeah. We need to understand that it's the same for us today. The fault for sin lies at our own feet. And yet, so often we want to point the finger at God. We will rush into a marriage based on youthful passion and then ask God, why would He let it fall apart just a few years down the road? We'll squander our money on entertaining ourselves with trivialities and gathering possessions to ourselves. And we wonder why we slide into financial ruin. We'll relegate the raising of our children to the television. And we turn them loose with their smartphones. And we wonder why on earth they do not have a love for the Lord. Why they're so rebellious and so disrespectful. The answers to these questions are not hard. But the problem is we often eliminate the main culprit before we even begin the investigation ourselves it's much easier if we can point the finger away from ourselves toward God like Israel does yes we can say God disciplines for sin yes God allows sin to have its effect in our lives but God is not the curse God is the cure and we will only experience disaster after disaster after disaster until we acknowledge him as such until we acknowledge rightly that sin is our responsibility, that we are at fault, that we are broken and messed up, and we run after these things that will bring ruin and destruction into our lives. And the only answer is to submit to the loving rule of Christ in our lives. Third, so second, we need to Accept personal responsibility rather than blaming God. Third, we must affirm what is holy rather than what is legal. Affirm what is holy rather than what is legal. Now this may sound at first a bit counterintuitive. Because isn't it good to obey the law? Well, yes. In fact, we're commanded to do so in Scripture. God expects us to obey the laws of our land. But sometimes people will use the letter of the law in an attempt to circumvent holiness. If you don't know what this looks like, if you don't understand what it looks like for a person to do this, then go and reread the Gospels. Because this is what the Pharisees were known for. This is why Jesus condemned them. He said, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. He says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. You see, they're they're very careful to follow the letter of the law. To do what's right. To check the boxes off. But the matters of the heart. The matters of holiness. They have neglected. And this is what Israel is doing here. They had taken these oaths. And so they felt obligated to them. We've, 
We've bound ourselves together with an oath. We dare not break this oath. And so they searched like corporate lawyers. Apologies to any corporate lawyers in here. But they searched like corporate lawyers for any loophole that they might be able to exploit to remedy the crisis that they now face. How can we get around these oaths that we've taken and still provide wives for the tribe of Benjamin? In the absence of any clear word from God, they resorted from, to pragmatism. Notice again, God does not respond to their inquiry. On the second day, they build an altar and they sacrifice the Lord, perhaps thinking that like before the third battle, when they built an altar and they sacrificed to God and God answered them, that maybe this time He would answer, but they received nothing. And so having received nothing from the Lord, they turn like humans are wont to do to pragmatism. Attempting to stay within the bounds of the law, but paying no heed to holiness. That is why they were willing to slaughter an entire city, stealing away all the young maidens while butchering their mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters. But technically, they had taken an oath that whoever was not represented in the war against Benjamin would be under the curse. So this was all legal. I'm sure the young, bereaved, and soon-to-be-raped maidens of Jabesh Gilead took great comfort in that fact. Then, since they hadn't secured enough wives in the first effort, they decided to double down on their wickedness, kidnapping another set of virgins. This time they wouldn't slaughter their families, though. They've restrained themselves a bit. That's nice. But when their fathers and brothers do come to demand justice, as you would expect them to do, saying, where is my daughter that you've stolen away? They would simply assure them that it was all legal since they hadn't given their daughters to the tribe of Benjamin. You took the oath. You wouldn't give your daughters to Benjamin, but Benjamin's come and taken them. So let's not make a big deal about this. Let's just let them take them and do their things so that Benjamin can be preserved. I can assume that these elders that made this decision didn't take their daughters up to Shiloh that year for the festival. And so... Pardon me. In all this, they're attempting to somehow skirt the bounds of propriety to maintain these oaths that they have taken to stay within the legal bounds of the law, paying no regard to holiness. As if this wasn't despicable enough, notice that they agree that this action should be taken during one of the annual festivals to the Lord at Shiloh. Now the law required that three times a year, Israel would come together, all of Israel would come together at the place, the phrase that Moses uses in Deuteronomy is at the place where God would choose to make his name dwell. And early on, that place was Shiloh. Shiloh was the place where God's, God's name dwelt, where God's presence was, where God met with his people. And so the people would come together at Shiloh, they would worship God at one of these festivals three times a year where they would celebrate their commitment to the Lord, where they would celebrate the covenant with them, where they would celebrate the blessings that God had lavished on his people. But instead of this being a festival of worship, the men of Israel turn it into a time of terror, a time of kidnapping, 
and rape, where any attempts to pursue justice are preemptively thwarted. They already have an answer. When these men come seeking justice, they already have a ready-made answer that they're going to use to deny these men justice that are seeking their daughters and their sisters that have been taken. They desecrate the Lord's festival. They desecrate the time of worship. We see in this story then a great warning against any sort of democratic legalism. You see, it doesn't matter if every single person in a country, a state, a city, or even a church agree that they should do something. That doesn't make it right. That's not the standard of right and wrong that we should pursue. Majority agreement does not ensure rightness. Only God's word, God's standard of holiness is right and good. And so whatever attempt we make to circumvent that, even if we're all in agreement on the path that we take around God's word, we are still in sin. The people here thought they were obeying the law. But in the end, they had only further distanced themselves from God. They had defiled the worship of God in the place where he had chosen to make his name dwell. They had desecrated at least 600 families throughout Israel. They had annihilated yet another city in Jabesh Gilead. But hey, all of it was legal. All of it was okay according to these oaths that they have taken, that they had agreed upon. See, as humans, we are prone to desire law over holiness. If we can boil the Christian life down to tithing, attending church, reading our Bible a certain number of times, then we think we've done well. We can check these boxes. We can obey these laws. And we've done what we needed to do. But God desires our hearts. God desires holiness. And this is why the Lord says in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, He says, I hate I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. The Lord says to his people, you are an offense to me. You have all the trappings of religious service. You you check the boxes. You, You do the things that you're told to do. But there is no holiness in your midst. There is no love for me in your midst because if there was, you would act differently. You would treat one another differently. You would love one another better. But you see, we don't respond well to this. Our default position is just tell me what to do. Just give me a list. Just tell me what to do. I'll do it. I'll meet my obligations and then be on my way. But you see, that's never worked for God's people. We want the law, but we cannot keep it. And so instead, God offers us Christ to change our hearts, to apply Christ's law-keeping work to our account. But this isn't easy for us, and so we have to remind ourselves of this truth daily that we need holiness not the law we need christ not a to-do list otherwise we will slip back into the well-worn rut of legalism 
And we will tread that path all over again. Seeking to please God, to earn his favor, to do the things that we think we need to do to be a good Christian. We need Christ. Judges 21 is what happens when legalism and pragmatism is exalted above God's word. When we begin to ask, what would work rather than what is right? See, there's a big difference between those two questions. And often we like the question, what will work? Because what will work is a lot more easy to accomplish. When we seek expediency rather than getting down and working hard to determine what would honor God. There's an easy way to a lot of situations, but then there's the way that God would have us act. And a lot of times God calls us to act contrary to the world, which means it's going to be hard. It's going to take some thought. It's going to take effort. It's going to take sacrifice. But that's what God calls us to do. The men of Israel sought expediency, a quick solution to this problem of Benjamin. They had no faith in God. If God can make dry bones live, he can provide an inheritance to Benjamin. They had no faith. And that was their problem. They didn't believe God. They didn't take God at his word. And so they said, we'll take this matter into our own hands. Doesn't matter the cost. We will, we will provide a solution. Many things may work to accomplish desired results, but they fall far below the standard of God's word. We exchange short-term results for covenant relationship with our God. And we will never come out ahead in that exchange. Therefore, our final point is that we must assess our actions by God's word rather than what is right in our own eyes. As a concluding remark on this chapter and, for that matter, the entire book of Judges, the author issues a familiar refrain in verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What a damning remark. In essence, the author is stating that everything that has preceded has been devoid of any real righteousness. When we do what is right in our own eyes, we can expect only disaster. And that is exactly what we have seen throughout the book of Judges. Disaster as the people pursued what was right in their own eyes. Unfortunately, this type of self-righteous pragmatism did not cease at the end of this book. It did not cease in verse 25. It persists even today, which is why this book is so relevant to us today, which is why these stories, though gruesome and grotesque, need to be read, need to be studied, need to be analyzed and applied. Because churches, particularly here in America, do what is right in their own eyes, week in and week out, as it pertains to the worship of God and the ministry that they participate in. We need to heed the warnings of judges and use this book, as the author intends, as a mirror to evaluate our own life and practice as individuals and as a church to ensure that we are pursuing holiness. I want to read to you how one commentator concludes his commentary on the book of Judges. He writes after this verse, Human heroes in the book of Judges are few and far between. The same is true in the history of the church and especially 
in the contemporary American evangelical church. No book in the Old Testament offers the modern church as telling a mirror as this book. From the jealousness of the Ephraimites to the righteous pragmatism or to the religious pragmatism of the Danites, from the paganism of Gideon to the self-centeredness of Samson, and from the unmanliness of Barak to the violence against the women by the men of Gibeah. All the marks of Canaanite degeneracy are evident in the church and its leaders today. This book is a wake-up call for a church moribund in its own selfish pursuits. Instead of heeding the call of truly godly leaders and letting Jesus Christ be the Lord of the church, everywhere congregations and their leaders do what is right in their own eyes. In the meantime, Yahweh, the Lord of history and the Lord of the church, remains unchanged in character and intent. Because of his bountiful grace, he continues to hear the cry of the oppressed and to deliver those who call upon him. In his grace, he reaches out to those who claim to be his own, pleading for them to return to him, to abandon their Canaanite ways, and to recommit themselves to joyful obedience to his will. May the Lord of the church continue to lavish his mercy upon an undeserving people. Indeed, we need Christ's mercy. We need the Lord of the church to lavish his mercy on an undeserving people because that is what we are. That is what we are. The good news is that despite the unsettling ending to this book, the author does not leave us here without any hope. For throughout all of this mess, God remains unchanging and steadfast in his love for his people. And even in this concluding statement, even in verse 25, there is a seed of hope. Because the author places the events of this book, not in the present, but in the past. He says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Indeed, today the king does reign. Not in Israel, but from his throne in heaven. And over all people. Today we are able to pursue holiness. Because of his righteous reign. And there is coming a day. When his reign will be consummated over all the earth. So that no one will anymore do what is right in their own eyes. But they will forever be subject to his righteous and loving rule. Let us see then that the answer to the book of Judges. The answer that it cries out for, is not found in keeping the law better or in having better heroes or stronger heroes or more powerful warriors. In the book of Judges, we've searched through every tribe in Israel looking for a fit ruler, a fit warrior, a fit hero, and none is to be found among men. No one is fit. That's not the answer. We don't need a better type of man. We need Christ. In Christ alone do we find the antidote to all the ills of this book. He has come once and for all as king, the great oath keeper, the one who took responsibility for our sin upon himself, the one who demonstrated holiness because he is holy. The one who is the full and final revelation of God. 
His word made flesh. All of our points, avoid rash oaths, accept personal responsibility, affirm holiness and assess our actions by God's word, they point us to the need for Christ. They point us to the completed work of Christ. He is the hero that satisfies the longing that Judges leaves us with. Let us then rally to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is sometimes hard. Lord, we acknowledge as your people that what we have seen and read throughout this book contains a great deal of evil on the part of your people. But Lord, breaking through the evil and the wickedness of your people, the idolatry, the cowardice, the hard-heartedness, the misogyny, all the terrible things that take place within this book, breaking through that, Lord, we see your grace and your love. (coughs) We see your mercy manifested to your people in ways that is surprising and shocking. You don't abandon them. You don't leave them without hope. You rescue them time and time again from disasters of their own making. Lord, I plead for that same mercy in our lives. We too are prone to go our own way. We too are prone to do what is right in our own eyes. Help us to realize it, Lord. Help us to have people who love us enough to come and point it out to us that we are pursuing a destructive path. And help us to then live and walk in obedience to your word, looking always to Christ, the judge, the king that we need. It is in his royal name that we pray. Amen.